y'all have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 24. I'll make one more plug for the deal on Tuesday. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we will eat, but hopefully that won't be the highlight of the evening. We're also going to spend some time uh, really trying to figure out what does it look like to live out the vision of the church. The vision of our church is to see our community transformed by God, which really doesn't mean a whole lot to most of us. It's big and nebulous and ambiguous and all of those things. And we're going to try on Tuesday to figure out one step of what that might look like in our life to actually live in such a way that our community could be transformed. So I'd encourage you to come if that um, floats your boat at all. And also, we're looking to start some small groups in January. And if you're interested in starting a small group, I would encourage you to come as well because um, hopefully you'll get a little guidance on what we're looking for there. This is Matthew 24. This is Jesus talking, starting in verse 4. Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's a good Christmas passage there, don't you think? I don't know where you stand on the whole end of the world continuum, if you think it's coming tomorrow or never or Whatever, but common sense says it's getting closer just because today is today and not yesterday. Every day that we live, we're getting closer to the end. Just you're a day closer to when you're going to die than you were yesterday. Doesn't mean you're going to have, just because it's today and yesterday was yesterday. You get that. So common sense says it's getting closer. Wherever you stand in terms of when that will be, I would say it's closer today than it was yesterday. It'll be closer tomorrow than it was today. If you read that kind of description of things that are happening, I'm not going to try to peg events in the Middle East to how they relate to prophecy and all of those things. And I don't really, if you do that, okay, I don't. The only thing I know about predictions is every one of them has always been wrong. So if that's where you want to put your money, you can. I would not necessarily recommend it, but I would say as you read, look at that description, it kind of, it fits. This is 1 Timothy, no, excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I always thought that was interesting that he puts that in with all of these other things. Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Sound like any place you know. The end is coming, and it's coming soon. In the end, things are going to get bad. They're going to get really bad. You can read, here's what, this is Jesus, and this is what he says. There will be deception, there will be war, famine, earthquakes, 
persecution of Christians, apostasy, that's Christians turning from God. Wickedness will increase. The love of Christians will grow cold. You just heard that description in 2 Timothy. It's not going to be. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. But it's also going to get better. I think Jesus says in verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. This is Revelation 7. This is interesting. This is after, if you're familiar with Revelation, there are these six seals that are opened, and the first four are the four horsemen, the pale horse and the white horse and the red horse and the black horse. It's death and famine and war and conquest, all these wonderful things. And then this is on the heels of the first six seals. This is what John sees. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. That's John. He's having a vision. He's saying, You know, I don't know. And the elder said this, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation, who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are there before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread His tent over them. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So in the midst of this great persecution, all of this upheaval, upheaval, all this turmoil, all these bad things, we also see this picture of all of these new people who are in heaven. John says he couldn't count the number, and they come from everywhere. Jesus says his gospel must first be preached to all nations, and it will be effective. So the end of times is going to be bad, and it's also going to be good. It's going to be really bad, and it's going to be really good. It's going to be the extreme of both of those things. It's going to be as bad as it's ever been and as good as it's ever been. Because out of all of this wickedness, kind of Satan making his last stand, God is going to reap the largest harvest of people he ever had. And so that's kind of where we're headed just because it's today and not yesterday, and every day we're getting closer, whenever that is. Every generation has thought their generation was the last one, and ours thinks the same thing, and the one behind us will think the same. That's just how it is. That's how we're supposed to live. So, whatever. I'm not going to put a date on it, because I'll be wrong, and I don't like being wrong. But it's closer than it was yesterday, and it's going to continue to get better, and it's going to continue to get worse. And we, as people of God, are going to continue to have to learn to live in this chaotic world of upheaval. And we've got to figure out what are we going to do. Verse 13, Jesus says this, He who stands firm to the end will be saved. Which to me, that's also kind of a good news, bad news thing. That's good that some people will make it through. When you read about all the bad stuff, you start thinking, well, is anybody going to make it through? Are we all going to get ground up? And he says, no, they will. They're, he who stands firm, they'll, they'll, they'll make it through. And then the question is, well, am I standing firm? Am I one of the ones that's going to make it through? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. 
how can we stand firm? Now, let me give a little digression here. There are different schools of thought on salvation. And one, you may have heard the phrase, once saved, always saved. If you ever have become a Christian, you've ever invited the Lord into your life, then you're kind of, you're saved forever. There are a lot of people who really love Jesus who believe that. I'm not one of them. You can believe that if you want, but I don't. I believe that we all have the freedom to choose. We have the freedom to choose to be in a relationship with God, and logic says, and you have the freedom to unchoose to be in a relationship with God as well. And so I think this command to stand firm is real. I don't think that's just something he put in there to kind of make us live better. I think he's saying, no, seriously, you've got to stand firm till the end. You chose me. You've got to keep choosing me. I don't think anyone loses their salvation. You may have heard that, like you lose your keys, you wake up one morning and suddenly you're not a Christian and you can't find it. I don't think that's it at all. I think you can throw it away, just like I can throw it away. Um, kind of the picture to me is um, if you've ever held the hand of a three- or four-year-old and they see something that they want, you're stronger than them and you've got a tight grip, they can work their way free. You didn't let go of them, but they wormed their way out of your grip. That, to me, is the picture. You can do that. God has a firm grip on your hand, and he, but you can worm your way out of there if you want to. If you consistently and intentionally choose against God over a long period of time, you'll break free from him. We've said before that our eternal destination is really just what we want. Everyone who's in heaven wanted to be there, and everyone who's in hell wanted to be there too. And at the end of the day, that's where you want to be. You can squirm free. I don't... Again, I don't believe that, you know, you prayed a prayer when you were eight and that's it, that you're set for life and it doesn't matter how you live and your choices don't matter. I don't, that's not where I'm coming from. Again, you can go for that if you want. I don't know how you understand to stand firm then as a command and that only those who stand firm will be saved. I don't say that to scare anybody. I think that's just real. We make choices and our choices matter. And over the end of the day, the art of your choices will determine your destiny. The trajectory of your choices is toward Jesus, then okay. And if it's against him, then okay. And that's the deal. So anyway, that was kind of a digression. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. And so then the question for me becomes, well, am I standing firm? The Israelites lived in the middle of this really pagan world. Sometimes we forget because the Bible obviously focuses on Israel that they were a really small fish in a really big pond. If you can remember your world history, which you probably can't, very little time is spent on Israel because they weren't that important. Kind of the big guys of the day were Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia. Those were the world-changing empires. Egypt, at, I mean, Israel at the most was kind of a pawn in their game because of it was strategically located, but that was about it. You don't find chapters and chapters and chapters in your history books about Israel. This little bitty nation that kind of got big for a short period of time, but never really ruled the world like these other empires did. Israel was a small fish in a really big pond, and there was constant pressure on them to become like the people around them. And God knew that, and so he gave them a strategy for not doing that. And it was very simple. He just said, remember. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll constantly read God saying, remember. Just remember what I did. And that seems so silly and so simple. And if he who stands firm to the end will be saved, and that's what you got for me, is to remember. 
deception, false prophets, persecution, war, earthquakes, famine, and that's what you have. Remember. But that's what he had. And remembering is something old people can do and young people can do and smart people can do and not so smart people can do and individuals can do and families can do and churches can do and nations can do and weak people and strong people and anybody can remember. And that's what he said. He said, remember, just remember in general what I've done for you and remember specifically what I did for you when I pulled you out of Egypt. You remember that. Your ancestors, they were in slavery for like 400 years. And then I, there's this guy named Moses and he went and the 10 plagues and they crossed the Red Sea and you remember that. And that's a story that they repeated over and over and over again. That was woven into their identity as a people. God delivered us then. Maybe not me, but he delivered my ancestors, and I'm a part of them, so yeah, he delivered me too. Over and over again, remember, remember, remember. Read the Psalms. That's the prayer book of the Old Testament. Throughout, you'll read these references to crossing the Red Sea. That was the pivotal moment in the history of Israel. And God was constantly pointing back to that. I know it's bad now. And you've got, you're a little guy and there are these big guys and they've got more people than you and they've got more whatever they had to fight with than you. And you're, you're feeling overwhelmed here. But remember what I did then. You were the little guy back then too. You were, a, you were slaves back then. And remember what I did. And if I did it then, do you think I'll do it now? If I showed you then that I was able, do you think I'm able now. Just look at my track record. You don't even have to trust what I'm saying. Trust what I did. Look at my track record with you. I've done this for you in the past. I've delivered you from a situation where you had no reason being delivered. You had nothing to do with it on your own. But I did that. So if I did it then, do you think I can do it now? And he says the same thing to us. Just remember. Remember. That's how you stand firm. We're, we live in this swirling world, and even if you don't buy into the world as chaotic, I would encourage you to read the headlines for five days and see what you think. If the world is chaotic, your life maybe will testify your world is chaotic. Even if the world is not, maybe your world is. We need to stand firm because those are the ones who are saved. And it's not a scare tactic, it's a reality. That's where we want to be. We want to be the ones at the end who persevere and receive the reward. So what do we need to remember? I think we need to remember our collective past is one thing that we can remember. This is important around Christmas. We're not going to talk a lot about this today. We'll talk about it over the next um, four weeks. If there's a countercultural thing we can do, how about trying to figure out a way to celebrate Christmas that honors Jesus? I don't want to be the guy on the street who doesn't have a Christmas tree and whose kids don't get presents and have to go to school and on the what they when they write what they got for Christmas they say you know a hug or so I don't want that to be I don't want to be that weirdo but there's got to be some way of celebrating Christmas that remembers the reason Jesus came which was to save sinners 1 Timothy 1:15 Christ Jesus came to save sinners that's the deal and I'm not saying that you can't sing Jingle bells and buy presents, for sure. I'm not saying that Santa is an anagram for Satan or any of those. He is. It is. He wears red. And I think it would be very ironic that he lives in the North Pole, which is really cold, instead of hell, which is really hot. I think that might be there just to throw us off track a little bit. 
whatever. That doesn't matter. What matters is, this is probably, if you were going to list the three most important things to ever happen in the history of the universe, this is number one. And number two is Good Friday, and number three is Easter. We lost all of them. We've lost every one of them. So, and it's not a guilt thing, it's just, and I don't have any solutions. I'm just saying, is there a way? That's something that we need to remember. We need to remember what God has done for us. What God has done for you is embedded in what God has done for us. And if we lose what he's done for us, we've got no bearings for what he's done for me or what he's done for you. It only makes sense in the context of what he's done for us. We're going to talk about that over the next four weeks. The second thing is you do need to know what God has done for you. You need to remember your individual past. That's your personal testimony. You've probably heard that phrase. The question is simple. What's God done in your life? That's it. What's he done in your life? What's he done in your life over the course and what's he done in your life recently? And if you don't have an answer, well... Your personal testimony is your is a record of your experiences with God. If you don't have, it, it's your eyewitness account, your eyewitness testimony of what he's done. Everything else is hearsay, and if you've ever watched Law and Order, hearsay is inadmissible. It is. I don't care what you heard. I care what you know. What can you testify to? Not what can you tell me about her, what can you tell me about you? What's he done in your life? That's a, do you have one? If you don't have a personal testimony, I would say you might not be a Christian. If that's your, if your personal testimony is your experience with God and you don't have any experience with God, then I'm not sure what you have at the end of the day. And that's, again, that's not a guilt thing at all. That's just, that's reality. Um, Revelation, I think it's 12, 11 says, they, meaning us, overcame the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. If you don't have a word of testimony, then what do you have? In terms of you're defenseless against the enemy. And he will come at you, and you will have a crisis of belief. And if you don't have any record of what God has done in your life, then what do you have to stand on? All you have is what I've said or what someone else has said, and that's not enough in a chaotic world. It won't get you through. Hearsay will not get you through in a chaotic world. You'll fall apart. Because you got nothing. And again, that's not a guilt thing. That's just a reality thing. Do you have a personal testimony? If not, get one. God's active. And he'll be active in your life if you'll ask him to be. And then you'll have one. And you'll have a record of what he's done in your life. It not only, to me, it not only helps you overcome the enemy. I think your personal testimony is one of, it's kind of an undefeatable apologetic. There's a lot of stuff out there about how Christianity is not true and, you know, the Bible is inaccurate and there are all these holes in it and all of this jazz. And there's a whole truckload of books you can read to answer all of those arguments. And they're great. I've read a lot of them. They're, they're wonderful. And they're these academic, philosophical, intellectual responses to these academic, philosophical, intellectual issues that people raise with Christianity. And there are issues. There are issues. And there's no reason to hide from those, but you can kind of get locked up going toe-to-toe with somebody on that. And at the end of the day, I heard somebody said that said this, uh, a person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. At the end of the day, if you have a personal testimony, then it really doesn't matter what the smartest guy in the universe says about anything. 
on and on and on about why God, why God doesn't exist. And what you say is, wow, well, this is what happened in my life. And it's proof that he does to me. And there's nothing anybody can do about that. That's not to say we don't need to figure out all these other things, and there's tons of people who've done that. And again, if that's your deal, go for it. But none of you need to be intimidated because you can't answer every objection intellectually to the Christian faith or philosophically or scientifically or archaeologically. I think and I believe that Christianity is the most solid religion out there on all of those grounds. It stood up to the test of really, really smart people trying to shoot holes in it for a really, really long time. But at the end of the day, if that's not convincing, I still have a personal testimony of what God's done in my life. And that's, you can't argue with that. You can walk away, but you can't argue with it. And that's the same thing for you. We need to remember our collective past. We need to remember our individual past. But most importantly, I think we need to remember our future. If you can remember your future, it will anchor you in the present. How do you remember your future? It hadn't happened yet. The Bible is full of descriptions and promises about your future. And if you can grab onto those, they will anchor you. This is um, Hebrews 6, starting in verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. That's God swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us will be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What the writer of Hebrews is saying there is there's some things that God has said, and they are unchanging. And those unchanging things serve as an anchor for those of us who've chosen to put our faith in those things. And that anchor reaches in, it says, behind the veil. That's the Holy of Holies. We talked about that before. That's where... In the, old, in the temple where God was said to live. So we have this anchor that reaches into the presence of God that holds us secure in a chaotic world. If we remember these things that God has said, that's why I say remember your future. Some of you have been engaged, and being engaged, when you know you're going to be married on a certain date, it affects how you live today. Some of you have been pregnant, and you knew you were, expect, you were going to be a parent on a certain day. That affects how you live now. Many of you have either have moved, you've gone to college, you've switched jobs, and you've known that is out there, and that's affected how you live now. Your future, if you know it, will affect your present because that's what you're living towards in all of those things, and all of those things aren't even secure. That's what, you know, Jesus gives that command. He says, don't swear, don't make an oath, and I've always thought, what's the big deal? And the thing is, I think what he's saying is you can't, you can't fulfill that. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and no be no. Don't say anything beyond that. And the reason is because I can't do anything beyond that. Can I meet you for lunch tomorrow? Yeah. Can I promise? Sure. But I could get hit by a bus, and there's not a lot I can do about that. So why don't I just say yes? God's the only one that can make it happen. He's the only one that has any right to swear, to make an oath, because he's the only one that's 
actually controls all the variables. None of the rest of us do. And he gave Abraham a promise, I'm going to make you a great nation. His word's enough, but just to make sure we got it, he swore. He said he gave us a promise, and then he promised he would fulfill it. There was an oath, that's the promise, and then he swore that he would fulfill it. That's like us saying, I'm going to do this. You swear? Yeah, I swear. Except I can't follow through on that. And God actually can. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is you can get those things. Those are unchangeable. That's something that you can put your anchor in. And they will anchor you to the presence of God. Remember this. You need to remember that God has an unchanging purpose for you. From the beginning, the purpose of God has been to create a people for himself. That's what he set out to do. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, you'll, you, you know what happens. The sixth day, he creates us. Everything else is just to get ready for us. He's creating a place where we can live. I'm not a scientist by any stretch, but I've read some, and this is what's floating around out there. There's this thing called the anthropic principle. Have you ever heard of that? Basically what it says is there's so many um, characteristics of the universe that have to be very finely tuned for us to live, that it couldn't be an accident that we're here. There are all these different variables, and all of these variables have a very small margin of error. And if any of those variables are not within this small margin of error, then we don't exist. One dude, he said that the chances of all of these things, and it doesn't, it's a force of gravity and the ratio of protons to electrons, and it's really riveting things, speed of light, all of this stuff, if any of those things were different, then we wouldn't be here. And the guy says, these are the chances of all of those things happening randomly, 1 in 10 to the 282. So if you wrote 10 and then put 282 zeros out after it, that's the chance. And if I put that in words, that would be 1 in 1 million trillion, 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 trillion. Trillion, 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 trillion. 23 trillions. That's a huge number. Mathematicians say anything over 1 in 10 to the 50th is impossible. This is 1 in 10 to the 282nd. You don't have, nobody gets that number. Whatever. It's too big a number. There's a, thou, a, thou, a million seconds. That's like um, 11 and a half days. A billion seconds, 31 years. A trillion seconds, 31,700 years. This is a million with 23 trillions after it. You don't get that. But that's what they're saying, the chances of all of these different variables happening randomly. I saw that there were 93. One guy said, here are the 93 things. That's in the universe. So the universe has to be finely tuned, and then so does the earth. And this guy said, there's 93 things that have to happen on the earth. And again, it's all this, how much hydrogen's in the air, and all this, how fast the earth spins, and all this stuff how close we are to the sun, and the margin for error, again, is very small. And this is the picture. He was saying, imagine Mars. That's an uninhabitable planet. We can't live on Mars. We'll die if we were to walk out of the lunar module or the Mars module or whatever. But imagine you got to Mars in your Mars module, and you saw a dome like they have in all the science fiction movies, and inside the dome there's this city, and it's all, it's us. It's people like us, and there's water, and trees, and there are all these things happening. And you're amazed because there's not supposed to be any life on Mars. And you walk around this dome, and you see this huge bank of levers, and there's 93 of them, and they all have all these 
labels at the top, gravitational field and percentage of hydrogen and percentage of oxygen and all of this stuff that they've got labeled. And they're all tuned exactly right for people to live. How many of you would think, wow, that's a, what a coincidence. All of these levers were tuned exactly right for these people to live. That's what it is for us. All that to say, who cares? All that to say for us, God has an unchanging purpose, and it's to create a people for himself, and it's written into the fabric of the universe. Our whole universe is hostile to our very existence, except for this little bitty place that we live on that happens to be ideal. And you can choose to write that off as a coincidence, or you can say, I guess somebody who's bigger than me, who can pull all those levers, wanted us to be here. There's purpose for your life. Your life might be full of mistakes, but it's not a mistake. You can make mistakes all day long, but your life itself is not a mistake. The chances of your life being a mistake are 1 in 10 to the 282, which you can't get and neither can I. It's not a mistake. There's an unchanging purpose for all of us, and it's for God to say, I want you to be with me. In a chaotic world where things are spinning, either personally or in our society or in our world, when things are spinning, it's comforting to know, well, the guy who pulled all the levers, he wants us to be with him. He said his unchanging purpose is to create a people for himself. I would say also another thing to remember is God's unchanging promise. You see that, I think it's in verse um, 18. Verse 17 talks about his unchanging purpose in verse 18, about God's unchanging promise. By two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. That's the promise that God made and then the oath he made for the promise. The promise is just this. I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. His purpose is to create a people for himself, and his promise is, I'm going to do that. I'm going to create a people for myself. You can see things went off track in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sinned. Well, that blew things in terms of God creating a people for himself, but he didn't give up. He didn't go to some other planet and say, well, I'm going to start from scratch. He said, no, this is it, and I'm going to fix it. And the rest of the Bible is about him fixing it. The promise that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is for Abraham to be a great nation. You remember the story, Abraham's 100 when he has a, or he's 75, his wife's 100 when they have this baby, Isaac, who's a child of promise. It's too old to have a kid. They have a kid. That's evidence of God's ability to accomplish his purpose. We've got that. We have Jesus. You maybe have heard, many of you have gone through Alpha. You've heard the Alpha course is an introduction to the Christian faith, and there's a segment where they talk about all of these prophecies that Jesus has fulfilled. It's appropriate here as we look towards Christmas. Some people say Jesus has fulfilled 48 prophecies. Some people say over 300. I'm not sure how come... Those numbers are so different, but they are. 48 or over 300 prophecies Jesus fulfilled. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see what they are. Some of them are easy. Born of a woman. Me too. We've all fulfilled that one. But some of them are not so easy. Of the line of Abraham, through the tribe of Judah, of the house of David. Those are all of his ancestors. Most of us didn't get to pick our family tree. By the time you're born, it's too late. You already had it. Jesus had all of those things. In the city of Bethlehem, most of you didn't get to choose what hospital you would be born in. To a virgin, that's a biggie. 
for most of us. We don't get that one either. There's some of the things Jesus did you could say he set up. Zechariah, I think it's 9-9, talks about Jesus or the Messiah riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And you could say, well, Jesus read that, and so he got on a donkey and he rode in to say, see, I did that. Okay, I'll give you that one. I'll give you that one and born of a woman. There's 46 more that we have to talk about. Let me see if I can find these so I quote them right. Psalm 22, 18. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothes. That's what happens at Jesus' crucifixion. The soldiers did that. And I'm not sure that he asked them and said, Hey, guys, while you're nailing me to the cross, if you have time, would you mind gambling for my clothes? That would help me a lot in terms of my fulfilling these prophecies that I've set up. There's a combined prophecy from Jeremiah 9 and Zechariah 11 about the Messiah being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And if you read in the Gospels, that's how much the um, Sanhedrin paid Judas to betray Jesus. He didn't have any control over that, but that's what it was. And there's, there's other stories. One, Zechariah 12.10, there's one about him being pierced. And if you remember, Jesus was pierced after he was dead. You don't have a lot of control over the events surrounding you once you're dead. He fulfilled every one of these Old Testament prophecies, however many you want to say, 48 or 300. He fulfilled every one of them. And the odds of that are staggering that one person could fulfill all of those prophecies. The chances of somebody fulfilling eight um, are one in ten with 17 zeros after it. And you've all heard this story. That would be like if you took um, the state of Texas and you filled it up with quarters and they're all heads up and you turn one heads down in the whole state of Texas and you sent a blind man in there and said, pull out the one that's heads down on your first try. The chances of that blind guy doing that on his first try is one in 10 with 17 zeros after it. You couldn't do that in this room. Fill up this room with quarters one inch deep and tell somebody to come in on the first try, pull out the one that you marked. It's not going to happen. And that's just eight, and he fulfilled 48. The number for that's out of the world, not even worth talking about. The number's so big, and who cares? That's just math. But what it means is this. God fulfills his promise, his purposes. He made a purpose. He set a purpose. It's unchangeable. I want a people for myself. And then he made a promise and said, I'm actually going to do that. And the thing about him is he can actually fulfill his promises. I can't. I can only do what I can do. And there's a thousand factors outside of me that can make me not fulfill my promise. There's nothing outside of God that can make him not fulfill his. That's why he says, I'm the only one that gets to swear. Because I'm the only one who can do it with integrity. Because I'm the only one who's not controlled by outside forces. And that's why you don't get to swear. It's not so you don't have to be in a jury or testify in court or any of that stuff. It's because at the end of the day, you can't control all of the things that can make you break that promise. But God can. And he said, this is my purpose for you to be with me. And I promise I'm going to make that happen. So pick something. Go through the New Testament and just pick something. What do you want? Forgiveness, it's in there. Peace, it's in there. Direction, it's in there. Healing, it's in there. A new body, it's in there. A new heaven, new earth, it's in there. Make all things new, it's in there. What do you want? Pick one of the promises. And he says, and you can guarantee it, it's already done. Because nobody stands outside of him who controls him. And so if he says, that's what I'm going to do, that's what he's going to do. Because nobody's big enough to stop him. So we've got this unchanging 
purpose and this unchanging promise that act as an anchor in our lives. And we don't even have time to talk about the unchanging person, Jesus. Hebrews 13.8 talks about Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 12 talks about this unshakable kingdom that we're talking about. So it's not just that you have a purpose and you have there's a, a purpose and a promise. There's also this kingdom, this reign of God that you get to live under that never will be shaken. And it will be ruled by this person who never changes. And you can read about him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what you see there is what you're going to get today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day because he doesn't change. We don't have time to talk about that this morning. There's a, there's a lot that you can choose to anchor your soul in a chaotic world. If you'll just remember your future. Remember where you're headed. And it's more sure than any date you've ever set in your life. Because the guy who said it can't be pulled off course. He said, this is what I'm going to do. Y'all are going to be with me. And I promise I'm going to do everything I've got to do on my end to make that happen. All y'all have to do is stand. And how do you do that? You just remember where you're going. That's all you have to do. Let's pray. We'll have some ministry teams in the back if you want um, prayer for any reason. Um, there'll be guys in the back who would love uh, to pray with you. God, I do thank you that your purpose is unchangeable and so is your promise. And that can serve as a sure anchor for us in a chaotic world. And I pray for anyone in this room who's feeling things swirling in their personal life or maybe they're just freaked out about running out of water in two months or whatever it is, God, that's going on in our world, I pray, Father, that you would secure us in our future. God, that um, we would live towards our destiny to be with you forever in a new heaven and a new earth. And God, that you would strengthen us. We want to be those who stand. And we know we can't stand in our own willpower and by our own might and strength and all of those things. We only stand by your grace. So, Lord, I pray for your grace to be poured out upon us now uh, as we worship and as we pray, um, that you would give us grace to stand in these days. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Y'all can stand up, and we'll worship for a bit.